Thank you, Tim, for that prayer supplication. Thank you all for being here this morning, especially on this morning. And uh, as I was praying about the possibility of preaching through the epistles of John, I remember how the Lord uh, so powerfully spoke to my heart and stirred my heart during that time period when I was privileged to preach through the, the epistles of, of Peter, Simon Peter, and, and, and how I was personally enriched through the, the teachings of the scriptures given to us by Simon Peter. And like, like Simon Peter, the apostle John, the beloved disciple, if you will, uh, has a deep love for the church and the mission of the church. And, and we'll see that as we begin to uh, open up the pages of this uh, epistle, or epistles, I guess I should say. We'll be looking at the longest of the three epistles given to us by the Apostle John in, in 1 John. And it almost seemed providential that the Lord was leading us to consider these relatively short books of the Bible uh, right on the heels of us having you know, spent time you know, uh, studying and, and me preaching to you about biblical, biblically healthy churches, biblically healthy church members, us taking time for a weekend to examine ourselves before the Lord and, and consider, you know, are we uh, up to snuff, if I can use that uh, expression, are, are we healthy as followers of Jesus Christ? Are we getting it right? Not according to the culture, but according to the Word of God. And so it just seemed like the, the, there was a providential leading that we would move into these three epistles uh, having come right out of the winter seminar dealing with biblically healthy churches and church members. And so I'll ask you to find your way over to 1 John as we uh, first of all consider the, the background uh, of the epistle, first uh, epistle of the Apostle John. As we look at the, um, the background of the uh, of 1 John, there's one of the things that if you are familiar with the epistles in the scriptures, those uh, letters from the uh, leaders of the church to the various churches, you'll, you'll notice in, in 1 John that there's no formal introduction, no uh, formal greeting, there's no formal uh, concluding salutation, if you will. In fact, the, there's no reference to who the author is. John doesn't make a declaration that he is even the author. And, and because of these, these characteristics, biblical scholars will typically say that 1 John is, is what they call a generic uh, epistle. And that doesn't mean we don't know who the author is because that's one of the first things we're going to look at as we talk about the background of 1 John. We're going to look at the author and the, the date and the setting of, of this uh, powerful little letter to the early church. First of all, John, the apostle, the disciple, is uh, one of two brothers who were disciples of Jesus Christ. His older brother, James, uh, is, is referred to in the scriptures and throughout the gospels, and, and, and uh, sometimes they're referred to together as, as James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee. And so who was Zebedee? He was their father. <laughs> you, know, you know from the background of the Gospels that they, they were fishermen. And their father had a, what appeared to be a rather successful fishing business there on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus called these two brothers 
uh, to leave their father and leave his hired hands and the fishing boats and the nets that they were so familiar with and to come and to follow him. And they followed Jesus, leaving behind all these other things. So they're known as James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But then, you know, I always remember, and I'm sure you do too, when Jesus classified the two of these boys as sons of thunder. Uh, and, you know, because even John, with his compassion and his love and, and, and having the title of being the beloved disciple, you know, both of these gentlemen were known to be somewhat passionate and uh, somewhat hotheads, if you will, temperamental. And they wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans who were going to reject Jesus because they just felt like that was the thing to do. Don't bother with these hardheads. Call down some fire. <laughs> Jesus, you know, calls them sons of thunder. And um, so that's another way we remember John. We also know that, that John and his brother James, along with Simon Peter, were uh, probably the three closest disciples to Jesus Christ. So many times you find them referred to as that intimate three that surrounded Jesus in that inner circle. They had the privilege of accompanying Christ up on the mountain in, whereby he was transfigured and his glory shone through and there with uh, Moses and Elijah and that great experience. It was Peter, James, and John. It was, it was Peter, James, and John that accompanied the Lord uh, that night in Gethsemane as he and his disciples were, you know, uh, just left the uh, observance of the Lord's Supper, the, the, uh, the Passover, and made their way to their favorite prayer spot, I guess, uh, the uh, Mount of Olives. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus left most of his disciples at, near the gate, and he proceeded deeper into the garden, and he took James and John and Peter. So it was in so many of these real powerful, intimate moments that John got to experience Jesus so closely. And so, you know, John refers to himself as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was up close and personal. In fact, the scripture describes how even as they were observing the Passover meal, and they didn't sit at tables upright in chairs as we do in our customs today, but they reclined around the low table and with their heads into the table and their feet sticking outward. And, and John was the disciple that was so close to Jesus that he was leaned up against his breast and as, as Jesus was talking. And you can just sense the closeness of this, this man of God. And so we, you know, ironically, John doesn't, name himself though. He didn't say, you know, this epistle written by John, the beloved disciple, da 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 just launches into the text. Historians, early church historians, church fathers, uh, virtually unanimously agree, overwhelmingly agree that, that John is the author uh, simply because this is the tradition of the church. It was passed along from the earliest of days. If anybody asks who wrote this particular epistle, it was always credited to John. Uh, about 85% uh, of the language that you find in, in the first epistle of John, and, and for second and third epistles as well, you'll find a lot of the same language in the gospel written by John. So, so there's some evidence that lends itself to say that John is the most likely candidate for authorship. When, when was this written? 
John also, in addition to being one of the closest disciples of Jesus Christ, John was, was the last of the disciples. Uh, all, being Native American, almost looked up and said last of the Mohicans, but he wasn't a Mohican. <laughs> he was a Jew. But, but he was the last surviving disciple. So his ministry took him all the way to the end of the first century. And so most scholars say that the, the epistles of John were probably written somewhere in the time period of 90 to 95 AD, making it some of the latter of the writings of the scriptures that we have. To kind of put it in perspective, Paul the Apostle has been dead for nearly 30 years. Uh, by the time that John is, is writing this text, John, of course, earlier, a little earlier, wrote the Gospel of John that we so much enjoy, uh, given to us under his name. John spent his last years, church fathers and church tradition and church scholars tell us, in the area of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was the region that was uh, in the um, uh, region of Asia Minor uh, under the Roman Empire. And, and you may recall from Paul's missionary journeys, or you're learning in CGG, that Ephesus was one of the towns that Paul visited and established a church. And, and he later wrote back to the church in Ephesians. But it just so happens that in his later, later years, according to church historians, John is pastoring this church that Paul had the privilege of establishing. John, John is living in this area, but he's not only shepherding that church, he's shepherding churches in that region. Because, think about it, he's the last one. He's the last surviving authority on the Word of God and on on the teachings and the life of Christ. And you can understand the preeminence that he held and, 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 and the respect that he commanded as he shepherded the churches in that area. We know also that Paul, John wrote the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that powerful and somewhat mystical, if you will, book of prophecy describing the apocalyptic end of, 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 of history and, and the coming of Christ and, 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 and all. John was in exile, had been arrested because he was such a bold and outspoken uh, spokesman for the gospel, such a powerful leader of the church that he was arrested and, and sent to this desert island called Patmos uh, there in the Mediterranean Sea. And it was there that John received that great vision, probably near about the time that he would be writing the epistles. And so we benefit from John in so many ways through the Gospels, the Gospel of John and through the epistles and then through the book of Revelation. This is the man who's given us these words that we'll be looking at in just a few moments. So you understand that time period. The purpose of the epistle, number one, is to preserve the apostolic teachings of the church. John was intent on, on preserving the teachings of Christ and, and the other apostles and keeping the early church grounded in truth. See, about 60 years it transpired. 60 years. A whole generation now has come up on the scene 
since Jesus ascended into heaven, since the day of Pentecost and the church was birthed, just understand that, that there's a whole new generation, a second generation of Christians. And John is aware of that. You see, in the, in, in the letter to uh, the, the Revelation, there in chapter 3, you remember where, where Jesus is, is writing to those churches. Or through John. He's, he's, John is writing as Christ is dictating to these churches. And, and even the church at Ephesus, you may recall. They were doing many things right. But by that time, some 60 years, a new generation, and this happens. This happens. When, when a church is, or a new work is started, and that generation that were, were privileged to be a part of rolling up their sleeves and getting the work up and going and investing themselves and, and seeing the vision of this great work, and, and they pour themselves into it with zeal and, and, and enthusiasm. But then, maybe a generation later, their children, their grandchildren, who may be a part of the work, they, they may not have that same zeal and enthusiasm. They may not understand what, what it was that caused that new work to come. So even Ephesus, by the time Jesus had dictated that letter to the church through John, Jesus said, you're doing a lot of things right, but one thing I have against you, you've lost, you departed from your first love. So John is keenly aware of this. And, and as Christians begin to, to lose their zeal and they, they, they lose the, the, the clear laser focus of the purpose of why they exist, sometimes other influences can cause them to become confused, can mislead them. And I'll share with you why that's important. But John is determined to reacquaint this new generation of believers with the foundational teachings of Christ. And to reinforce the teachings of the other apostles so that the church is strong, the church is healthy. Does that sound familiar? You see, folks, even as late in the first century as John is writing this epistle, and we all associate the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century A.D. as a terrible time of persecution. That's really not the threat that the church is facing right now, and you'll see this very quickly. That's really not the thing that has John so concerned about the early church. It's not persecution. The most ominous threat to the early church at this time is not external, but it's internal. You see, there has arisen a very sinister and seductive form of false, unauthorized teachings that have begun to infiltrate the churches. And this has captured John's attention. And this has caused deep concern for this aging. How do we know he's aging? Because so many times in the epistles, John will lovingly refer to his readers as my little children, my grandkids, in such a term of affection. But, but the infiltration of, of her heretical teachings and false teachings 
should not have blindsided the church. It should not have caught them off guard. My goodness, all the way back in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is preaching that, that discourse on the end of time, Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 24, listen to these words and, and understand how appropriate they are for John's day, but also how appropriate they are for our day. In Matthew 24 verse 4, the Lord says, it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. In verse 11, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And then also in verse 24 and 25, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And indeed, and indeed Jesus was warning the church or those disciples who would start the early church, be on the lookout. They will come and they will try and they will succeed. In deceiving many who follow me. That warning went out there. So John is, is not only writing to reinforce. And, and shore up the early church. But he's also writing this epistle. These epistles. To counter the deceptive teachings. Of heretical groups. That had risen up at that time. Before we jump into 1 John. I know y'all are chomping at the bit. And that's great. I like that enthusiasm. But, but also hear this. This almost prophetic word from, from the Apostle Paul. On one of his last missionary journey as he's making the loop and he's coming back and, and, and he's at the um, port of Miletus and he's, he's wanting so much to, to greet the, the elders at the church of Ephesus. He doesn't have time in his journey and his schedule, his protocol to, get to, to go to Ephesus. So he sends for them and they come to that port city where his ship is docked and they meet with the Apostle Paul, you, you recall there in Acts chapter 20, when they were gathered and Paul was giving them this last charge and he was speaking so compassionately to them from his heart. But listen to what Paul said in Acts 20 verse 29 as he's addressing the elders at Ephesus. He says, for I know, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among you men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul's charging the elders of that church. Be good shepherds. Be on the lookout. The wolves... And he's talking about false teachers, false preachers, heretical leaders. And he said, they will come and they will infiltrate the church. And some of the false teachers will rise up right from the very midst of the congregation. And so now we see John, some 30 years later, they've come. And they've already begun their devious diabolical work of undermining the integrity of the early church. And John is writing fervently, passionately, countering heretical teachings of groups like the Gnostics. 
a quasi-Christian group that influenced, was influenced by the secular philosophy of Plato. And, and, and philosophy was a big movement in the Greek Greco-Roman Empire. And everybody is getting on board, just like the contemporary church of the 20th century. I can remember maybe a decade or two ago where, you know, all of a sudden psychology was the way to go and churches were abandoning the teachings of the Word of God and, and expo, uh, expositional preaching and, and they were introducing pop psychology into their messages and how you should feel better and have a better self-image and if you're not a good Christian, it's your grandmother's fault and all of this. I don't know about that. I apologize, grandmothers. But, 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 the philosophy was, was a big movement and, and even the church was beginning to be influenced by this and these heretical groups, the Gnostics, taking their name from the Greek word gnosis, knowledge, they, they, they asserted that, oh, oh yes, certainly, you know, salvation is, is through faith in Christ, but, but, but to really arrive to be able to achieve the, the, the ultimate fulfillment of the Christian life, you've got to have this higher knowledge that is divinely imparted. And so the Gnostics were super-Christians in their own mind. They looked down on ordinary Christians who had not been blessed to receive this ultimate knowledge. And, and so to salvation by grace, they were adding uh, the acquisition of this imparted knowledge, if you will. So while they accepted a form of the deity of Christ, the Gnostics, oh, they acknowledged that, yes, Jesus was the deity. They didn't argue that. But because of their philosophical system, they denied his humanity. Because dualism prevailed in the philosophical teachings of that day, and, and you couldn't bring spirit and matter together. Matter's evil. God has nothing to do with matter and our bodies are made of matter so no there's no way that 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 the messiah could be human and it's that kind of false teachings that was beginning to make its presence amongst the churches and this is what has captured john's attention there are a variety of gnostic heresies that were being floating around at that time and 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 and, and churches were having to deal with but then, uh, as we begin to read together here in 1 John, we'll see that one of the things that John wants to do right out of the gate, he wants to give to the church, those early Christians, a clear affirmation of the true nature of Christ. Apart from the false teachings of these heresies, John wants them to know who Christ really is. You know, we're not immune, ladies and gentlemen, to heretical teachings. We're not immune to false teachers and false preachers and false prophets. There are a number of, 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 of movements out there that will give, they'll give credence to Jesus. Oh yes, we believe that Jesus existed. Uh, oh sure. We'll give you that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago and yeah, he was a wonderful teacher. Uh, uh, yes, he worked miracles. A <laughs> great prophet. But then they pull up short when you begin to question them. But really, who do you say Jesus is? 
Can you say with confidence that this Jesus is the only begotten Son of God and He Himself is fully divine and fully man and was the Savior of the world and atoned for the... Many times that's where they get off the bandwagon. In fact, if you, one of the truest litmus tests for, to determine if a group is a cult is simply ask them, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? And many of them don't believe that He is indeed the only begotten Son of God, fully God, fully man. So John is coming before the people in the writing of 1 John and given this first epistle from his own experience, he testifies of the unchanging truths of the gospel. Remember, what John is saying is not hearsay. That's why it's important to this second generation of Christians and this, with all the cultural influences that they're under, John is saying, listen to me. I'm telling you from first-hand experience. And you'll hear that as we read together there. So he, he relates to them the incarnation of Christ and the ministry, ministry of Christ and, and how that is at the heart. There's no separating from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that He is God come down to earth, incarnated God-man and lived among men. There was one group called themselves the Docetists. They, they claimed that Jesus was spirit and that he came upon the man, Jesus, when Jesus was baptized. And, and the spirit of Christ occupied this man, Jesus, and, and he taught through this man, Jesus, and worked miracles through this man, Jesus. But... But at the point of the cross, the crucifixion, the Spirit left. And so therefore, he was just taken up temporary residence as if possessing, uh, possessing the man. And John says, uh-uh. The gospel is that Jesus was fully man from the beginning all the way to the end and even beyond his death. So we see the, the incarnation woven into the gospel God's grace is extended to mankind through His Son, Emmanuel, God with us. That's how we receive the grace of God, is through the person of Jesus Christ, who was truly a human being. Born of a virgin, lived among men, experienced temptation, but did not sin. He, we could relate to Him. And it was His substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, as God, fully God, fully man, incarnate Christ he was the Lamb of God and he died for our sins and so the apostle confidently affirms the humanity of Jesus Christ refuting the false claims of the Gnostics that had infiltrated the church now in 1st John chapter 1 John says that which was from the beginning that which was from the beginning reminiscent of the beginning of the gospel of John you remember chapter 1 in, in the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Christ. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh 
I believe in verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Now when John is writing in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning speaks of the very beginning of the creation of the world. At the time, and so this is where we have some, it's difficult for our finite minds to, to try to wrap around the infinite nature of Christ, the eternal nature of Christ. Somebody, I heard one commentator, I think it was old J. Vernon McGee. He says, go back in time as far as you can, as far as you want. In, in eternity past and put down a stake and he says out of the eternity beyond that will walk Christ go as far as you want to put out a stake and look and Christ will be coming out of the past eternity so you see John is saying in his gospel in the beginning the beginning of, 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 of the world the beginning of, of creation as we know it in the beginning, not is, Christ didn't come on the scene. He wasn't created with creation. But even in the beginning, He was. Which says He pre-existed. He was there before. But that's not the sense in which John is writing now in 1 John chapter 1, when he says, that which was from the beginning. John is talking about the incarnation. He's saying to his, to his readers, listen, from the very moment that this baby was born of a virgin, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and laid in a manger, born Jesus, from, from the very beginning of his ministry, he was fully God and fully man. In that which was from the very beginning of this ministry. He, he didn't show up on the scene at his baptism. And he didn't leave at the cross. He's, he's fully engaged from the time he was born. From the time he ascended into heaven. So now, John is, is, is writing here in verse 1. He's recalling various ways that he, as one of the disciples perceived Christ. That, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, implying the ears. John says, I've, I've heard his voice, which we have seen with our eyes, glanced at. John probably never forgot the day. He was a disciple of John the Baptist and never forgot that day when, when Jesus showed up on the scene. And, and, and John, his, his mentor, John the Baptist at that time said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was probably John the Apostle's first glance. He says, I heard him. I, I, I remember looking up at, and seeing him and knowing that there was had to be something different about this man. And hearing John the Baptist's exclamation, but then he goes on. He says, that which we've seen with our eyes. In other words, it's just glanced at. Which we have looked upon. Still, with our eyes. He says, oh, not only did I look at him. He says, I can remember times where I just sat spellbound. Just gazing at him. At him. Just obsessed, absorbed in him. Watching him. 
looking at him. John says we looked upon him, we gazed upon him, looked intently upon him. I imagine the times when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, when Jesus was casting out demons. But I can imagine being with John and Peter and James and, and the other disciples and, and being the inner circle, being nestled right up there close to Christ there on, the, on, uh, on that mountainside when Jesus is, is preaching and teaching the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and with great authority. Talking about the things of eternity, the things of God with such authority. I can imagine there's John just spellbound. He, he lost sense of place and time. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. He says, we, were, we, we looked upon him. We gazed upon him. We absorbed him with our eyes. Our hands have handled him. John had plenty of times to reach out and touch Jesus. To shake His hand. To give Him assistance. Getting into the boat. He probably had times where he felt the hand of Jesus when he was needing to be comforted. Struggling and felt the hand of Christ touch him. I shared with you once when we were in Kenya on our missions trip and we had the privilege of working with the Kenyan pastors and their church members and we would go, would go walking through the brambles and the bushes and into, you know, wherever to find these homes where the people were and to witness or go to villages and witness. And, and, and we, we walked a lot on these dusty trails. And, and I'll never forget the time that the first time that one of the pastors that I had been engaged in talking to and befriending, and you know, we're walking along and, and he just kind of comes up beside me and he takes me by the hand and he starts walking with me, holding my hand. Now, you know, to an American macho man, you know, you, I'm looking around like, ha, 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 who's, who's watching this? You know, wait a minute. You know, here's a pastor and he's holding my But then... When we inquired, they, they informed us that in that culture, as you know, in that area of the world, and I imagine even in, in, in the Middle East where Jesus ministered, there was a it was a it was a show of 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 of, of uh, brotherhood, closeness, of of acceptance, friendship, as if to say we're we're walking together in in, in ministry. And then it was okay. <laughs> I can see Jesus maybe sometimes when walking along as he's got the disciples with him and John's engaging, talking to him. And maybe he just reaches over and takes John by the hand. Just walking along and saying, Now, John, let me tell you again, you know, how it is with God's forgiveness. And let me go over that and let's talk about that thunder thing, okay? <laughs> but, you know, I, I really can, can see our Lord holding. Maybe John, John says, you know, we, we, we touched him. Our, with our hands, we've handled him. Concerning the word of life. The word of life is Christ. He's the essence of the gospel. Take the word of life out of the gospel formula, ladies and gentlemen. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness. There is no salvation. There is no eternal life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the 
life. He's, he's called the Word. And, and John says, all of this concerning the Word of life, it's a term that he uses to express the centrality of the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. He is the Word of life. In verse 2, the life was manifested. In other words, made known, revealed, seen. And again, he's saying, we have seen, bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life, that eternal life. In other words, Christ is in the, the embodiment of eternal life. We, he says, we declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. When Jesus came into the world, he revealed to the world the very concept and, 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 and embodied the very principle of eternal life. To see Jesus was to see eternal life. To see he, an eternal living being. He was the only one. Because of, to that point, everybody was spiritually dead. And John says again, we've seen and we've heard and we bear witness of him. That event, and again in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Why is John so redundant? Why is he going over and over and over saying, I've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. Why? Because John wants to establish his unique authority to speak of Christ in the, in the face of opposition from false teachers who, who come with their high you know, puffed up knowledge and their philosophical language and they, their complex way of communicating and, and as if to intrigue the people, to impress the people with their higher knowledge. And John said, time out, time out. How many of you knew the man? How many of you ever talked to him personally? How many of you did he take time to teach? How many miracles did you see him work? Tell me what his pierced hands looked like in his, in his side after his resurrection. <laughs> How many of you jokers were standing on the mountainside when he was speaking to us and was caught up and began to rise up and was lifted up into the clouds as he ascended into heaven? How many of you? Raise your hand. And they dumbly had to be silent because John says, I One of the last voices to be able to say with that kind of authority, I know what I'm talking about. Hang your philosophy. Hang your high knowledge, he says. Let me tell you who Jesus really is and how you can really get to know him. And as we move further in verse 3, he says that you, and we're at this point, we're getting to the promises that John is offering to those early readers that you may that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ John reminds his readers that there's a glorious benefit or benefits I guess I should say in believing rightly about Jesus and one of the great benefits is the promise of fellowship with Christ and with the Father. Because you don't have fellowship with God. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me. 
And folks, eternal life is being in fellowship with God. And John is saying, unless you get it right, unless you have right beliefs about Jesus, and you understand who He truly was, then you don't have fellowship with Him. Reminded of what sin and salvation represent to us. Paul said in, in um, Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith in, in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus brings us into the presence of God. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, in that dialogue with Nicodemus, you know, John recorded where Jesus told Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. In other words, will have fellowship with God called eternal life. And the ability to relate personally with the Lord gives us also the privilege of being able to have fellowship with one another. And we'll see that later in chapter 1 of verse 7 when he talks about if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship one with another. You, knowing Christ properly and understanding who he truly is, having a right understanding of Christ gives us fellowship with God, but it also gives us fellowship with other believers. Simple axiom is this. Sin separates. And faith in Christ, the Christ of the Bible, reconciles. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from others. And Christ brings us into fellowship with God. But not only the promise of fellowship, verse 4, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Who doesn't want joy? The promise of lasting, divine joy is, is important. I think about when Jesus was teaching ministering in chapter 15 of John in verse 11. Listen to what he says. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus wanted his followers to experience his joy. But you couldn't do that if you truly didn't know him for who he was. And that's who John is describing. So we have the privilege of experiencing the joy through right belief in Christ. In Paul's writing about the gifts of the, the, or the fruit of the Spirit in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, he tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. That's divine joy. That's spiritually imparted joy. So John is saying one of the benefits of, of having a right knowledge of and relationship with Jesus Christ, the, the God-man, if you will, is that you receive the privilege of being in fellowship with God, fellowship with Christ, and fellowship with His bride, the body of Christ. Heretical teachings do the opposite. False teaching does the opposite. That's what breaks my heart about the, the plethora of false religions out there and, and, and cults out there and false preachers out there. They're driving a wedge between people and God. They're building a barrier. They're not bringing people to the Lord. They're separating people from God. Only Christ and a true belief in the Christ of the Bible brings that. 
So John is writing to combat the anxiety and the anxiety and the uncertainty and the confusion that comes with these heretical teachings. He's writing to encourage Christians to receive the full blessing of salvation. John's got much to say in this little letter. And we'll be looking at more content next time because we spent a good deal of time with the introduction and background. But I, I encourage you to go ahead and just read ahead. Meditate on what he's saying. I pray that through this time in God's word, we will be shored up and strengthened and, and affirmed in our right beliefs about the Lord Jesus Christ and be us even more solid in our orthodoxy and practice related to who Jesus truly is. But that we would also have a passion to bring people out of darkness who are caught up in the grips of false teachings and cults out there today.